0: What's up, family? You are tuned into Law & Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. On today's show, Dorothy Roberts, author of Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. White people could go to court and petition
1: that black parents were neglecting their children and that the children were better off back under the authority of former white enslavers. So courts ordered that they become apprentices of former white enslavers, sometimes their own enslavers, the very people who had enslaved them prior to the Civil War, through this court system, which mirrors so eerily what happens
0: with Black families today. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. If you were Black in America, chances are you have been in foster care, a family member was in foster care, your home was visited at some time by child, air quotes, protective services, or that these agencies touched your life in some way. Department of Child, Family, and Child Protective Services is as common in our communities as liquor stores and churches, and yet precious little is happening in the way of discussing the damage these agencies do or how we as a community, or a movement for that matter, can and should push back. We're going to address a little bit of that this morning with today's guest, Dorothy Roberts, who is the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she directs the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. She's the author of four books, which include Killing the Black Body and Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare. She joins us today to discuss her new book, Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Dorothy, thank you so much for joining us this morning.
1: Oh, thanks so much for inviting me and raising this important topic. I really appreciate it.
0: Um, I want to start with how you first came to encounter the violence of the child welfare system and its particular impact on Black children and their families.
1: I first came to understand how violent the child welfare system is in the early 1990s when I was working on my first book, Killing the Black Body. And that book is about the regulation of Black women's childbearing. And I was paying special attention to the arrests and prosecution of Black women who were pregnant and using drugs. And that put me in touch with this other system, which was also punishing thousands and thousands of Black mothers at that time. By taking their newborns away from them. So that was my first encounter with how the system actually worked. I, of course, I'd heard of the so-called child welfare system before. I knew there were child protective services, but I had never had any engagement with it. And at that time I was teaching in Chicago, uh, I started to look into the uh, way in which they were punishing these mothers and going into family court to start to observe how the courts were treating families whose children were being taken. And one of the very first things I noticed was that all the people appearing before the court were Black, every single one. It was mostly Black mothers whose children had been taken from them and who were in court to plead to get their children back. And it was unmistakable to me that this was a racist system because everyone was Black. These mothers were clearly being traumatized and their children, and I could see that they were simply women who were struggling to take care of their children and were having their families torn apart because of it. And that's when I started to look more deeply into not just the racial disparities in the system, but the kind of impact that it had on Black communities.
0: Dorothy Roberts, I'm a firm believer in... in that we, we only understand today, right, the conditions of today by understanding how we got here. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the creation and rise of the child welfare system in this country, um, and how it evolved, or, or maybe the right word is actually devolved, um, mm-hmm. as its focus shifted from white children and their families to black children and their families. And um, even one step further, right, the... The lack of control, uh, the lack of agency that we as Black folks, Black women in particular, have had over um, protecting our children, holding on to our children, determining the path uh, forward in life of our children and, and how tight it is to the vestiges of chattel slavery in America.
1: Yes, I agree with you that it's important to understand history, to know the roots and the design of oppressive systems. Of course, they change over time, but when the very foundations, the principles, the stereotypes, the designs that they were based on during slavery continue, it is, I think, an important way of understanding how the systems operate, why they operate that way, why it is that they are punishing black families. So I do trace the origins of the intense involvement of black families in what I call a family policing system back to chattel slavery because family separation and the authority that white enslavers had over black families were absolutely essential to the slavery system. Uh, First of all, there was control over Black women's reproductive labor, exploitation of it, in order to produce the children that were born uh, legally considered the chattel property of enslavers. And then white enslavers had complete legal authority over Black families. They could sell off children whenever they wanted to at the auction block, they could sell every family member to a different purchaser and they could split up families because it was financially beneficial or to punish the families or just because they wanted to give a gift you know, of a child to someone else. Uh, they had authority over that. And so family separation and white authority over children. Uh, without giving rights and, and uh, without acknowledging the value of Black family bonds traces all the way back to chattel slavery. But then at a very important period that is usually overlooked is what happened after emancipation and the desire of white supremacists who wanted to take back white domination of the South, uh, to re-enslave Black families. And I think we now, because of prison abolitionists and historians, have understood that incarceration became a way of taking back control over Black people. And Black codes were passed, the convict leasing system, chain gangs, all of these ways of exploiting Black labor and denying Black autonomy and freedom took hold in the South. But what's rarely mentioned is what happened to Black children. White people could go to court and petition that Black parents were neglecting their children and that the children were better off back under the authority of former white enslavers. And tens of thousands of Black children were put back into virtual slavery through what's called apprenticeship. So courts ordered that they become apprentices of former white enslavers, sometimes their own enslavers, the very people who had enslaved them prior to the civil war, got them back again to work for them through this court system, which mirrors so eerily the what happens with black families today, those families I mentioned in family court in Chicago, where, through petitions that Black parents are negligent, their children get taken from them and put into the custody of others. Uh, And then we can go into the establishment of the formal child welfare system, which supposedly was designed to be more progressive and save children from abusive parents. But it was a system that dealt primarily with white children and did provide services to some of those children as they continue to live with their families. Uh, Those kinds of services were denied to black children. Black children whose parents died, for example, were more likely to be put into the the now new juvenile justice system. Uh, than to get any kind of support and help from the state. And it was only with the growing civil rights movement in the 1950s and 1960s that Black families began to get welfare benefits, including benefits through child services. But as soon as Black families began to enter these welfare systems that had served white families for decades, everything changed. Uh, we know with welfare became more punitive. Uh, there were man in the house rules and suitable house rules that kicked lots of black people off of the welfare rolls. Uh, this was a backlash against the growing civil rights movement at the time, but also in the child welfare part of the system, instead of providing services to families, the main so-called service to families was to, to Black families, I should say, was to take them from their homes and put them in foster care. And so we can see from the time of the civil rights movement to the 1990s, a steady increase, in fact, an exponential, just an astronomical increase in the foster care population as Black families began to be sucked into what's now a punitive system, uh, not receiving services in their homes, but having their families torn apart by this system. And there's a simultaneous expansion of foster care and expansion of the number of children so that when we get to 2,000, Black children are the largest group of children in foster care and black children are four times more likely to be separated from their families and put in foster care than white children. Uh, Just a dramatic change with the system becoming a policing system that punishes families and not one that provides services to families.
0: Thank you for, for that detailed uh, historical account and, and for bringing us specifically up to the 1990s because I want to take a minute and talk about the role that the war on drugs, which was, as uh, you know, I know many of our listeners do really, a war on black bodies in our communities. What role did that play in the escalation of the impact of child welfare and how did the myth, and it is a myth, and if you want to delve into that, please feel free, uh, the myth of the crack baby contribute to this dynamic?
1: Yes, the 1990s are a really important period for the intensification of policing and punishment by the so-called child welfare system. And it played an integral part in the buildup of neoliberal punitive approaches to human needs that we know the prison industrial complex played and the restructuring of welfare. So all of this is going on at the same time. And while scholars and activists have noted the connection between the war on drugs and the dissolution of the welfare state in America, few have paid attention to the role of family policing or the child welfare system. So let me Talk about that. So I mentioned that I first encountered the so called child welfare system in, oh, I'm sorry about that, in the late 1990s. uh, Let me. Dorothy, I'm going to ask
0: you to, um, I'm sorry, just stop and go back to I first encountered. Just start at the beginning of your sentence. No worries.
1: Sure. Sure. And let me, I'm trying, I have my phone on. Let me just turn it off altogether. I put it on do not disturb. And then I have
0: the same problem. I do that. Me too. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, okay. So tell me, remind me where I'm going back to. I'm sorry that flustered me. Um,
0: no, no, no. You're um, fine. Uh, we're talking about the impact of the the war on drugs and the myth right, of the crack right, baby. Mm-hmm. Right,
1: right, right. Okay. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, I first encountered the violence of, of the family policing system when I was doing research on. The impact of the war on drugs on Black mothers in the early 1990s. And there was definitely a connection between the war on Black communities and Black bodies uh, that people call the war on drugs, but the intensification of policing and punishment and incarceration in Black communities uh, based on the Uh, the the expansion of uh, criminalizing drug use and distribution and also the so-called crack epidemic, which was used as an excuse for very discriminatory uh, targeting of Black communities for law enforcement and incarceration. Well, part of that was the myth of the crack baby, the idea that black women were using drugs while pregnant and giving birth to babies who were harmed by their drug use in ways that no other babies were harmed. Uh, They were supposed to not just have these really accentuated medical problems, but there were articles, even in scholarly journals, but also in the media circulating That crack, so-called crack babies, who of course were black babies, uh, were predicted to lack a social consciousness. That they were going to become criminals. They wouldn't be able to be educated. They would be welfare I'm sorry. They would be welfare dependent. They wouldn't be able to succeed in society. In fact, they would become predators on society, and. This was a complete falsehood. Uh, now we have studies that show that these children did not grow up to have any of these problems. And whatever problems they have are shared by other children in their neighborhoods as a result of structural racism and poverty. And they this idea that black mothers' drug use caused all the disadvantages that black Children experience became very popular and also became a justification for arresting, charging these mothers with crimes and incarcerating them. So, hundreds of Black women were arrested while pregnant or soon after giving birth because they or their babies tested positive for crack cocaine. And this was the transformation for the first time in US history, uh, actually, I'd say the first time in world history, where a public health problem uh, having to do with pregnancy was turned into a crime. Uh, These women were criminalized in a way that had never happened before. And I'll just mention, by the way, that This has a lot to do with the state we're in now with the violation of reproductive justice that began with this kind of criminalization of pregnancy that is often overlooked. Uh, So part of the war on drugs was a war on Black mothers based on disparaging but long-lasting stereotypes about Black mothers as not caring for their children Uh, passing on depraved lifestyles to their children. And this was the basis not only for criminalizing Black mothers, but also for taking away their children. Uh, And the same stereotype that what fueled the restructuring of welfare, the idea that black mothers were so-called welfare queens. And I think it's important to note these, these stereotypes were circulating at the same time at, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the stereotype of the black woman who traded sex for crack and then had a crack baby and the stereotype of the welfare queen, who again was a black mother who supposedly had babies just to get a welfare check and then wasted all the money on herself. So there are these deep, deep deep-seated ideas. Again, we can trace back to the slavery era that Black mothers don't care for their children. They are dangerous to their children and their children would be better off either not born at all or taken by the state. Now, let me put all this in the context of federal legislation that was passed in the 1990s, one right after the next. It's not an accident that we get these three critical laws passed by Congress in the 1990s that all relate to what I've just been saying. So there was the Crime Control Bill of 1993, which expanded federal funding for law enforcement. Uh, there was the restructuring of welfare, the abolition of the federal entitlement to welfare uh, passed in 1996. And by the way, these laws are being passed under President Bill Clinton by a Democratic Congress, signed by a Democratic president. Uh, Then we have right on the heels of the 1996 welfare restructuring law the 1997 Adoption and Safe Families Act, which sped up termination of parental rights and gave bonuses to states to increase their adoptions of children from foster care. And I hope it's now clear that these are all related to each other. They all have to do with turning to punitive measures, putting people in prison, taking their children away, as an answer to the devastation of structural racism and poverty concentrated in Black neighborhoods with now the end to any federal entitlement to welfare. It's the first time in U.S. history that we have the federal government telling states you have to protect children by taking them away from their families without any federal mandate that states provide any kind of welfare benefits to families. So I see these as racist, white supremacist, neoliberal policies targeting Black communities, stripping them of any entitlement to federal aid while at the same time increasing incarceration and family separation.
0: Dorothy, I'm going to go somewhere that I actually wasn't planning on going. And it's a, it's a big question. Um, mm-hmm. And one that I think that in, you know, in the various pockets of our movement, we struggle with uh, in different ways. How do you see these policies and practices serving the state? The state is making a decision mm-hmm. that this is the way it's going to go about, air quotes, protecting children. Um, clearly with f- fiscal impacts that don't make any sense, um, societal impacts that don't make any sense, um, uh, uh, no, uh, no actual addressing of, of the conditions that they're purporting to, to be trying to tackle. What gets served here? How is white supremacy served through these policies and, and practices?
1: Yeah. So first, let me tell you, that's a very important question to ask because I often get the response, well, we need this system of so-called child protection because children, Black children, are especially needy. You know, so my response is, well, why has the government made the decision to address the needs of Black children in this terroristic, punitive, traumatic Way by taking them away from their families. We have to examine, as you're saying, this is a political decision to do it that way. And why is that? And yes, it's because it does serve white supremacy and and this is how. For one thing, it sends the message that the state is addressing the fallout of structural racism and the greater disadvantages that Black children have in America, which are, you know, you you cannot dispute the fact that there are far higher rates of poverty among Black children. You know, that Black children are more likely to be incarcerated even as adults, that Black children are less likely to graduate from high school and go to college that Black children have higher rates of illness, that the infant mortality rate in among Black children is higher, you know, these are indisputable facts. So how do you explain that? And how do you deal with what should be a huge outcry and protest and demand for radical change to address those deep inequities. Well, one way to do it, and what's been a very effective way of doing it, is to say Black children have all these disadvantages. Actually, it's because of their mothers. It's because their mothers are passing on these disadvantages to their children. And again, that idea goes back. To the slavery era, and I could trace it, you know, every generation after the next with how that lie about Black mothers has been perpetuated, but it's extremely powerful. And I've already pointed out some stereotypes that claim that message that Black mothers are the cause of Black children's disadvantage. And then it's also addressed this obvious need for radical change and and Black liberation, it's also addressed by saying, oh no, the state is actually dealing with these unmet needs of Black children through our benevolent child welfare system, through child protection, through foster care. And it sends the message to the public that we have a system that is addressing Black children's disadvantages caused by their mothers. Uh, and it's called the Child Welfare system. And so it has this very powerful ideological, but politically ideological impact of persuading many people in the public, I, I think the vast majority of the u s public that this system is what we all we need and we need it. Now, at the same time, it supports white supremacy directly by disrupting Black communities. (laughs) So disrupting the resistance and the struggle, political struggle, that Black people engage in to resist white supremacy and to work toward Black liberation. Because it, it tears families apart. It has a huge impact on entire neighborhoods. I mean, one thing I point out in my book, Torn Apart, is that we don't even grasp the harm to Black families when we look at just the number of Black families who are affected by this. And it's too many. You know, one in 10 Black children in America will be taken from their families by this system, by the time they reach age 18. And more than half of black children will will be subjected to a child welfare investigation by the time they reach age 18. So this is a massive amount of policing and disruption inflicted on black families. But in addition, child welfare agency involvement in every big city in America is concentrated in segregated black neighborhoods. You know, wherever there is a, a black population, a significant black population, uh, in U.S. cities, there is racial segregation, and those and those neighborhoods tend to be impoverished or to have high rates of poverty, and they are also the places where the most child welfare agency involvement is concentrated. You know, look at New York City. Look at Chicago, look at San Francisco, look at Philadelphia. I guarantee you that if you find out where are most of the cases of child a CPS, you know, the Department of Children and Family Services or whatever it's called, it's going to be in those neighborhoods. And so every family, every child, every parent in those neighborhoods is affected by this system, because the system has a neighborhood-wide impact. It affects social relationships in the neighborhood in a negative way. It's highly disruptive of people's lives, and it casts a surveillance net over the entire neighborhood. It shapes the relationship that these neighborhoods have with the government. And so in that way as well, It supports white supremacy by weakening the ability of Black people to resist oppression. So at all of these levels, uh, and, and and let me add, we understand now, many people understand now how police and prisons target Black neighborhoods and disrupt them what we need to pay more attention to is the way in which they're deeply entangled with child protection agencies at a very practical level they work together they have joint task forces police go with caseworkers into black people's homes to search them police turn children over to child protective services and vice versa child protective services turns parents over to the police being in foster care is a pipeline to juvenile detention and prison. So everything that we're learning about how police and prisons are a form of oppression against Black communities, it's intensified by family policing. And in all of these ways, both ideologically, politically, you know, and then just practically speaking, the impact on people's lives, all of that supports and serves white supremacy.
0: You're listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Cap Brooks, in conversation with Dorothy Roberts about the violence of the child welfare system against Black bodies and her book, Torn Apart. I want to talk uh, a little bit more about impact, um, Dorothy. But I want to I do that, um, uh, I want to start to do that via one of the stories that you tell. Uh, there are many uh, gut-wrenching stories. Um, But uh, if you could talk to us about Vanessa and and her family.
1: Vanessa Peoples is a striking, but not a typical, well, let me say it so it's clear. Vanessa Peoples' story is gut-wrenching, but it is not an aberration of what happens to Black families that get sucked into this system. Vanessa Peoples was a young black woman, mother of two small children who was undergoing some health issues. She had anemia. She was being tested for leukemia and she was managing her children, her health issues while also going to nursing school. And one afternoon she went with her children to a family picnic in Aurora, Colorado. And at one point, her cousin who was watching her younger son, who was two years old, uh, left the picnic and her toddler strayed away following the cousin. Vanessa noticed this, grabbed her four-year-old son and began to run after her younger son. And as she's running toward him, she sees a stranger, a woman who just happened to be passing by, holding onto her little boy and on talking on her cell phone. And Vanessa arrives and says, uh, this is my son, give me my son back. And the woman uh has been talking to the police. She called 911 and she won't give Vanessa her son back. So Vanessa, who you know is has health issues, doesn't want to get into a fight with this woman and figures when the police arrive, it'll all be resolved, happy ending. Instead, the police officer arrives, doesn't want to give Vanessa her son back and the family has to come and vouch for her. And in leaving he hands Vanessa a ticket for child abuse. Now, why she should receive a ticket when her son only strayed away from her for a minute, already we're talking about racism because it would be very unlikely that this would happen if Vanessa weren't Black. But that's not the end of the story. A month later, Vanessa is in her basement, having just given her sons a bath. She's straightening up down there. And a white caseworker, accompanied by a trainee, a Black woman who was training, arrive at the door, knock on the door. Vanessa doesn't hear it because she's hard of hearing in one ear and also down in the basement. Uh, Her youngest son is in the window looking out. And so the caseworker can see there's a child inside. Uh, Instead of just waiting or coming back another time, she calls the police to come give backup. And they enter Vanessa's home, one of them with a gun drawn, as Vanessa comes up the basement steps and they begin to interrogate her. She says to them, my children are fine. Please leave my home. They refuse to leave. They begin searching her home and interrogating her and really degrading her, humiliating her. Uh, And as she begs for them to leave, they refuse to leave. She calls her mother for help. Her mother comes home and takes the children into the bedroom and the police officer, one of these police officers, comes and says, no, you can't, I have to watch over you. You cannot have your grandchildren in the room by yourself. Uh, Vanessa protests and the police officer grabs Vanessa by the neck. By the way, this is all on their body cam footage. Uh, So I watched all of it. I am not exaggerating any of this. He grabs her by the neck and throws her down Two other police officers join him on top of Vanessa, who is skinny, again, in poor health. And even if she wasn't, there's, there was absolutely no call for this, no call for them to even be in the house. Why do they need to be there in the first place? But they hogtie her. They force her arms behind her back and handcuff her in the process, dislocating her shoulder as she's screaming in pain. They shackle her ankles and then chain her arms to her legs and carry her out the house upside down like this. As she describes it, it was like she was a pig on a stake being carried out. Half an hour, she is in this painful condition until they call the emergency medical people to come and take her to the hospital. Seven police officers, all in all, arrive at her home, search her home, take notes on her home, take photographs of her home and and these body cam uh, footage of her house. As they disparage her, Even indicating at one point, one of the police officers says, if they're going to give the children to grandma, let's arrest grandma too. And eventually Vanessa is taken from the hospital to jail where her mother bails her out around midnight. And that's not the end of the story. Now, Vanessa has a child abuse charge against her. She is entangled in the child welfare system. She has to be subjected to supervision by child welfare caseworkers, which include supervised visits to her house where they monitor. How she's interacting with her children. She has to go to parent training classes. She has to go to a whole host of tasks and court appearances, which interfere with her ability to finish nursing school. Now, she finally finishes nursing school, but now she's on the child abuse registry, which means she cannot practice her profession of nursing, which she trained for. She cannot have a job that entails taking care of children, which by the way, is one of the main ways, healthcare and childcare, that Black women are able to find employment. She has been turned down by landlords to rent apartments. Her economic status has been weakened, not improved by this system. Her ability to care for her children has been disrupted, not improved by this system. The only saving grace is that she was able to get a lawyer who helped her keep her children in her custody. But for too many Black children in the cases like Vanessa's, not only are they traumatized by this investigation, by police brutality, but the children are also put in foster care. And thank goodness her children weren't taken from her and put in. Foster care on top of it, but they've been traumatized by what they witnessed happen to them and their mother and their grandmother.
0: I, yeah, and that's where I wanted to go next, right? The 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 a the long term impacts uh, on on Vanessa in terms of being able to hold a job or apartments or fiscal impacts um, that that is common place because even when claims are unsubstantiated or the, the parent jumps through all of the hoops, right? These are lifelong impacts. But as you're talking about Vanessa being hogtied, um, this happened in front of her children, right? And so I, I I, w- I want you to spend a bit of time talking about the long-term impacts on the mental and emotional health of children that either experience the weight of these types of intrusions into their home and investigations into their family, and even worse so for the children that actually end up in foster care. The, the, the suicide rates, the, the depression, the, the impact on their ability right, to, to, to forge out successful lives.
1: The impacts on children of being involved in any aspect of the system are really horrific and don't get anywhere near enough attention. The one time recently attention was paid to the trauma on children who are taken from their families was when President Trump intensified the policy of separating migrant children from their families. And there was a national outcry about that, as there should be. And we began to read in the media scientific studies and reports about the long-lasting trauma and psychological, emotional, physical toll that family separation inflicts on children. Now, that kind of attention hasn't been paid to the same kinds of psychological and emotional and physical toll that happens to Black children when they're taken from their families. And that goes on at higher rates and has been more long lasting than Trump's policy. It's the same impact. It's only the stereotype that Black families don't have deep and loving bonds that prevents the public from seeing that it's the same emotional toll on black children as it is on any other child. So there's that, the, the, the trauma of people coming into your home, interrogating you, humiliating your parents, searching your home, sometimes accompanied by police officers who are armed You know, we're talking about children seeing weapons of strangers coming into their home. Children are frequently strip searched by child protection agents supposedly looking for evidence of child abuse and neglect. They are taken from their beds in the middle of the night. This is just the investigation. So it's important to note that when I say that half of Black children will be subjected to a child welfare investigation, we're not talking about some mild, benign kind of exercise. As happened with Vanessa, that was an investigation. Uh, These are really long-lasting kinds of traumas that children experience. But then if we get to what happens to one in 10 black children by the time they reach age 18, being separated, taken from their homes, the damage is even more intense. And this is well-documented. Children who spend time in foster care are less likely to go to college, less likely to graduate from high school. They're more likely to be houseless, They're more likely to get involved in the juvenile justice system and adult prison system. They're more likely to have mental health and physical health challenges. They're more likely to have low incomes and even to be impoverished. You know, I can go down the list of every kind of harm, both psychological and physical, status-wise, you know, every kind of harm that is inflicted on children who spend time in foster care. Their social relationships are disrupted. Their education is disrupted. Their healthcare is disrupted. Just their physical security is disrupted. Many children move from one placement to another, and especially for Black teenagers, there's a high rate of being placed in institutional care from a group home to what's called euphemistically a residential treatment center, where Mm -hmm. children who have perhaps mental health challenges or emotional challenges are placed, but also many Black teenagers are placed there without any kind of medical need because there simply isn't a foster care place other kind of foster care placement for them. And these institutions, many of them are like prisons. Children are confined to rooms. They are without getting out. They don't go to school. They don't have an opportunity to visit their families. They don't have an opportunity to be with their friends. They're confined to these institutions, sometimes in rooms that are just like prison cells. Solitary. It's like solitary confinement for many of them. And the people who are supposedly caring for them, the staff, operate like prison guards. And this is why... There are cases where Black teenagers have been killed by the staff. I write about the case of Cornelius Fredericks, a 16-year-old who, when his mother died and his father was unable to care for him without the supports that he needed, right? I I agree with you. It's not that he didn't have the ability to parent his child. It was that... He was denied the ability to do it. Instead of providing supports, Cornelius was placed in a euphemistically called Lakeside Academy, which was one of these residential treatment facilities. And one day he threw a piece of bread in the cafeteria and was jumped on by multiple staff who asphyxiated him and he died in the hospital uh, as a result of this. There was a video showing that he had been subjected to this kind of treatment in the past. They videotape this torture, it's torturing children and nothing was done about it until a death occurred and then they shut it down.
0: You're listening to Law & Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks, in conversation with Dorothy Roberts about the violence of the child welfare system against Black bodies and her book, Torn Apart. Dorothy, I have so many more questions written down here um, to ask you, but we are definitely running short on time. And the the tagline uh, of this show is expose, agitate. Build, and I want to spend the the remaining time that we have together, uh, about eight minutes or so, talking about the building part. But I but I want to I want to give some context um, f- for this. So you you divide the book in, into three parts. The the last part. Being abolition, right, and why we need to look through this work through an abolitionist lens. Similarly, to prison abolition work, the first thing you know people want to talk about uh, with prison abolition workers, right. Well, what about the pedophiles and 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 the most egregious acts of violence that they can think of, willfully ignoring that that those folks are the minority of the people that are languishing in American jails and prisons. In your work, uh, people go and. In, in your piece of this work, right? Because it's all the carceral state. And I want to thank yes. you for giving me clarity about that um, as I went through through your work. Um, that people go to the most egregious acts of harm against children. And I want to give you a minute, um, and, and, and and let's make it a minute, because I I want you to talk about the way that Black women are leading the way to dismantling yeah. this system, that I think that's the most important thing that we can we can talk about. But I want I want you to address why that go to is dangerous. How in many instances, insta- instances, excuse me, it was the state that failed to protect these children, right? That that do end up um, dying uh, in in these horrific conditions. The state failed to protect these children in the first place. These are children that have been cycled in and out um, um, systems, and how uh, even more importantly, I think how the waste of resources in chasing down so many unsubstantiated claims in families like Vanessa peoples or punishing parents for poverty, right that the state creates, by the by, um, actually puts kids who need levels of protection in more danger. Yeah, it's a mouthful.
1: Yes, So first, let me point out that these cases that we read about in the paper of children who died at the hands of their parents, are extremely rare. And what puts them into the media is that they were known to the system. And so often when we read about these cases, that's the line that's used to describe them. Children known to the system, whom the system failed to protect. Now, why that would be an argument to continue the system that failed to protect them, I don't know. It shows the failure of the system to protect. But more important is that those are extremely rare cases. The vast majority of cases brought to the attention of the child welfare system that are investigated and where children are taken from their families and put in foster care involve neglect. Only about 16% of children in foster care are there for child abuse, uh, either physical Uh, abuse or sexual abuse. And even that figure may be inflated because, as I mentioned, Vanessa Peoples was called a child abuser, even though all she did was momentarily take her eye off of her son. So what we're talking about in the child welfare system is mostly cases of families struggling to meet their children's needs. They're not parents who don't care about their children, who deliberately neglect their children. They simply don't have the resources they need to meet their children's needs. And this system, instead of providing it or helping to create a society where we don't have these high rates of childhood poverty and disadvantage, instead takes children away or threatens to take them away. So this isn't a system that protects children. And it's simply A distorted way of thinking about it to focus on the extreme cases that were failures by the system and not to pay attention to all the families who are affirmatively harmed by a system that has at its center threatening, terrorizing, punishing and disrupting families.
0: So, Dr. Roberts, we've more than established, and you absolutely establish in your book, that the law enforcement and the state are not the proper responders to families that are in crisis. Who is? We are.
1: Our communities Hey, hey. Hey. there we We go. We are. So, what we have to do is abolish the system. And I have learned so much from prison abolitionists who have developed principles of what abolition means, strategies of how to go about it. And there are two key aspects of it. One is to dismantle these carceral systems that punish and do not meet people's human needs, that destroy families, that destroy lives, that destroy communities. Uh, That's not What we want, we need to dismantle them. That's one part of it. But we simultaneously have to be building up the replacement. So, this is another way in which people distort the abolitionist argument in respect to the child welfare system or family policing. You know, they'll say, Oh, you want to just leave these children in dangerous homes, you know, you want to leave them with unmet needs. No, it's the opposite. You know, the, the reason we need to dismantle this system is to keep children safer. It's to actually provide for children's needs. It's to end the dangers to children that are inflicted by the state and by, you know, affirmatively by the state by invading their homes, but also by a form of society and government that instead of providing for needs and ensuring the kinds of social structures that we need to meet human needs, punishes. And so we need to be replacing the carceral logic of these systems as well as the actual operation of these systems by a completely different approach, which is community-based, that is based on caring for families, that's based on caring for children, supporting their family caregivers, providing the concrete resources that people need, uh, and also working on transformative justice, not relying on police and prisons to address violence. No one in this movement is ignoring violence, but we understand the connection between state violence and intimate violence. And we understand that you don't turn to the most violent aspects of our society in order to address violence in our homes. We do need to address that, but through transformative practices that hold people accountable and get to the root causes for violence. The the family policing system doesn't do that at all. In fact, it deters people from seeking help for violence in their homes because they're afraid their children will be taken from them and put into what could be a more violent situation in foster care. So abolition is about strategizing for moving toward a horizon, a vision of a radically different society that actually does meet Human needs actually does keep children safe, actually does support families and care for
0: children. All right. We've got to leave it there, though. There is so much more to dig into. You have been listening to Law and Disorder. I'm your host, Kat Brooks. Our guest this morning was Dorothy Roberts. Miss Roberts is the George A. Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania, where she directs the Penn Program on Race, Science, and Society. She is the author of four books, including Killing the Black Body and Shattered Bonds, The Color of Child Welfare. She joined us this morning to discuss her new book, Torn Apart, how the child welfare system destroys Black families and how abolition can build a safer world. Dorothy Roberts, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much, Kat, for having me on your show. I really appreciate this conversation.
0: You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive.